Hello everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland and with me as always is Jessica Meterson. We are Hey Josh. Hello. We are the Legal Geeks and welcome to another installment of our show. Today, today we focus on Jessica and her great knowledge and fandom of Isaac Asimov. So Jessica, why are you an Isaac Asimov fan? Well, Josh, I'm glad you asked. Isaac Asimov was actually one of the earliest sci-fi authors I read. Of course, I started with John Carter, as anyone who's watched these podcasts or read my blog post knows. John Carter was my first love, but after I finished basically the entire John Carter series, I switched over to Isaac Asimov and actually his robot series, which is really, it was mystery books, but they were mysteries solved by robots. Um, so it certainly made it very sci-fi. He had excellent robots. And so I fell in love with those books and really that started it. I read uh, his fantastic voyage books, of course, which was, you know, exploring the body and the brain, adventurers exploring through the body and the brain. I think they made the first one into a movie, actually. I never saw the movie, but I think they did make that into a movie. Um, I saw it. Because oh, did you? They're traveling in a submarine. I mean, like, that's <laughs> one of my things. You know, the white blood cells crashing in and everything, escaping through a tear duct. I mean, I haven't seen that since I was like six years old, but that stuck with me. <laughs> I may have to watch it. So, but anyway, he's just always been one. He's truly, you know, there are those authors that I consider brilliant writers, um, be it in sci-fi or in other genres. He's one of those, he's just brilliant. Um, in addition, of course, to being a sci-fi author and an author of other books, as I discuss in my uh, blog post, he also was a professor of biochemistry at Boston University. And in fact, I came within one year of meeting him, and this broke my heart, one of my best friends from high school, her uncle was a librarian at Boston University and good friends with Isaac Asimov. But by the time she told me this, we'd already been friends for a few years, and he had just passed away. And so I was like, oh my God, Isaac came, you know, within two people of meeting Isaac Asimov, which would have been amazing. So, but I missed out. Him and Johnny Cash, I've missed out on meeting. Yeah, uh, well, let's work on time travel for you. So. <laughs> so, anyway, I'm a huge Isaac fan. My son is even named Isaac, not totally because of the author, but in part because of the author. So, I do, I love Isaac Asimov. N noted. So, uh, <laughs> which series is better, the Foundation Trilogy or the Dune series? So, you know, this is one, because one of the authors then that I fell in love with after Isaac Asimov, I'm very fickle, I fall in love with many, is um, Frank Herbert, who did the Dune series. And I need to do some posts on the Dune series, but it's such a dense, complex series. It was six books, and then, of course, his son um, wrote a whole bunch of other kind of fill-in books and subsequent books and prequels and everything. To me, the Dune series is one of the greatest, I mean, epics of all time. It deals with economics, religion, you know, geopolitical issues. It's just amazing. So to me, the Dune series... My dad and I actually used to have this argument because he was a big Foundation fan, and I always argue that, you know, Foundation is fun, Harry Seldon is great, but the Dune series, to me, was just the most amazing, one of the most amazing works done. However, I think I need to go back and read the Foundation trilogy again because lately, it's funny, it's had this comeback. Um, Nick Denton of the Gawker Media Empire actually had this whole Q&A that I participated in. He didn't answer my question, though, um, on io9.com about why the Foundation trilogy had such an impact on him, and I thought he had some really valid points. Um, Paul Krugman, Krugman of the New York Times, I don't know, I'm going to 
butcher the name, he just did a foreword to a new edition of the Foundation Trilogy, talking about what an impact it had on him. So I'm like, all of a sudden, everyone is giving all this love to the Foundation Trilogy, which, again, it's great. It's idea with this psychohistory and that you can use math to predict, like, future events. Kind of, you can't predict the, you know, what one person will do, but you can predict what masses of people will do is a fantastic idea. Um, to me, it still cannot compare to Dune, which I just think, I, I don't know, it will always be my first love. But I do have to go back and reread Foundation because it is getting a lot of love and respect lately. Interesting. Well, let, let's let's move on. How, how do you, you know, how do the Black Widowers' uh, tales compare to his other works? It's funny. I had no idea until I was at the library with my kids and was looking in sci-fi, looking for some Asimov books, seeing if I had missed any that I hadn't read. And it turns out that in his later years, he did a couple of books of short stories of mysteries. And I guess his love for mysteries, it shouldn't be a surprise, given that, of course, the whole The Caves of Steel and The Naked Sun, all those books were... Um, really mysteries at their heart just solved by robots so I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise that he likes mysteries they're fun to read again Isaac Asimov I think his you know he was a brilliant scientist and so he made these contributions to science fiction um, he actually coined the term robotics he didn't realize that he'd even coined the term but he did um, positronic brains which is kind of this robotic idea of brain that they actually used on Star Trek um, he coined that he coined he created the three laws of robotics which of course People said that if we did ever really create robots, we should use. I would like. I'm wondering actually if I would hope these three laws, which basically make sure that robots, the first law is don't harm a human. I'm like I think that's a very important law for all robots to have, and I don't know if that's built into modern day robots, but um, that was a huge deal. They even gave a very funny shout out to it on the Big Bang Theory, which I thought was very funny when they were kind of questioning Sheldon as to whether he might be a robot. <laughs> But um, anyway, so I think a lot of his best contributions are more in the science area. I don't, at the end of the day, think he's the most brilliant author. And so the mysteries are cute. Um, they're fun. They're entertaining. I like them because, as I talk about in my post, it is kind of like a bunch of lawyers sitting around questioning a deponent or a witness on a, a you know on the stand kind of thing, where the witnesses try and tell a story and they're trying to poke holes in it. They're trying to get more information. So as a lawyer, I found them entertaining, but I would not say that they're the. Actually, I don't know if this is actually evil to say, but I don't think they're the best mystery books I've ever read. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'll be struck down where you stand. I know. Sorry, Isaac. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the first law of robotics will be ignored because of that statement. That, uh, <laughs> so let, let's think about this because, you know, there, there's a wonderful quote from literature, and it's, you know, it's, it goes to Sherlock where, you know, mm -hmm. you eliminate the, and, and you know, it, it's something along the lines of when you eliminate the impossible, Whatever remains, however improbable, you know, must be the truth. And uh, what do you think of that quote? I think it's an interesting idea. I always had a problem with it. Number one, how do you eliminate the impossible? I mean, in theory, it sounds very good. But actually, and as I talk about, you know, um, judges have quoted that thing at least 13 times, um, maybe more, but there have been at least 13 quotes to it. Uh, you know, and of course, witnesses, parties, especially like in e-discovery, I talk about, you always hear parties in e-discovery saying, I can't do that, that's impossible. We can't search all those things, that's impossible. So there are two problems here. One, of course, is what is truly impossible. Um, that's always a difficult thing to determine. And then, of course, the second part, which Isaac Asimov addresses in his story, is that if people are just out and out lying, it's then difficult to determine what truly is impossible and what's just improbable. Yeah, it also, you know, raises its 
context in e-discovery in the you know, spoliation world or trying to allege spoliation, you know, for a failure to enact a litigation hold or, you know, trying to say, you know, they don't even have a document gap in, in, in a production set, but somehow claiming that, you know, e-discovery was destroyed. They were messing, missing email messages. It's like, well, well, how? Do you have something that shows something was at least sent, or are we just trying to prove a void? You know, it's yeah. the... It, you know, the, the weird negative inferences, and, you know, and judges want something to at least point mm-hmm. out. You know, it's the, uh, it's quite important, because you just can't, you know, wish something into existence. <laughs> you can't, and that's what makes it so difficult. It is, uh, yeah, like you said, proving a negative is obviously incredibly difficult. Um, and, yeah, and especially in e-discovery, you will have people swearing up and down that things are impossible. You do, of course, have cases in e-discovery where people out and out lie about what they have or haven't done. So, I don't know. I wonder what Sherlock Holmes, you could do a whole post on what Sherlock Holmes would do if he had to discover or investigate e-discovery spoliation charges. I smell an adventure coming. <laughs> foot. Let's finish those hard drives. So, it's time for some predictive coding and we'll have a ripper and good time. Uh, With a pipe. I need a pipe. Elementary, my dear Jessica. Elementary. <laughs> And I mean, Lucy Liu will play me in the movie. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> and I could have like you know, wow, I, I don't even know where to go from that. I don't, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Matthew Broderick would make a lot of sense for me. <laughs> you know, Steve, Steve, Steve Carell would make sense for me. But, you know, there, there are a lot of talented actors who would not make any sense for me. And I, yeah. All right. Well, with that, uh, <laughs> anyway. Any closing thoughts? Oh, gosh. I don't know. There's so much. I do love Isaac Asimov. Um, he really did start my love affair with science fiction. He has been considered, you know, one of the big authors, obviously more from kind of some of the, what, the mid to late 20th century. He, Robert Hyman, who's another one of my uh, loves. I need to write about him at some point, too. Arthur C. Clarke, they were kind of considered at one point the big three of science fiction. Um I, you know, I just think he was amazing. He had a brilliant mind. I really wish I could have met him, um, but I am glad that I've gotten to read. I have to check. I don't know if I've read all of his sci-fi books, and now that I'm getting through the mystery books, at some point, well, he's written over 500 books, so I'll probably never read them all, written or edited over 500 books. But um, he is pretty amazing, and so I have to thank him for uh, everything he did for science fiction. I've read, you know, a bunch of Arthur C. Clarke books over the years, and so he is... uh uh, you know, I read 2001 when I was in the third grade, and uh, excellent, excellent. <laughs> well, with that, we, I think we've we've shown our, our geek credibility here. So, yes. uh, stay geeky, Jessica, and stay geeky, America. <laughs> Bye, Josh. See you soon, Jessica.